said, I can't believe I had the privilege of talking to them. They're somebody. Um, when I was, is this on or no? There we go. Okay, sorry about that. When I was 14 or 15, my brother... He wanted me to fly out to Los Angeles and and accompany him in driving a 52 Plymouth back from California back to Iowa. And um, I had never flown before and so... Went to the airport in Minneapolis. We lived in northern Iowa at the time. And went to the airport in Minneapolis and and um, got on the plane. And you know how they get on and say, cover all these information about buckling your seatbelt. And, and under the seat is the life jacket if you need it. And oxygen will fall. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just listening to everything. I'm just this scrawny little 14, 15 year old and and I'm sitting next to this lady and when all that's done and we're getting ready and and she said to me, is this your first time flying? I look back, I wonder how she figured that out, you know. I said, yes it is and, and um, she said, where are you going? And that's kind of a dumb question. You're, <laughs> I guess it's not. Some people get on the wrong planes. But going to Los Angeles and told her, you know, what was going on. And I said, um, do you live in California? Are you? Well, she said, I live in Minnesota and California. I said, really? She said, yeah, I don't know if you know my husband, John Beasley. And to you, you won't know him, but... I knew John Beasley, number 87, tied in on the Super Bowl Minnesota Vikings, losing Super Bowl Minnesota Vikings. And I'm like, you are married to John Beasley? I mean, it's like, whoa, you know, this is, I'm sitting next to, I, the Minnesota Vikings back then were, to me, I, 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 knew John Beasley, you know, as much as you can know him. And, and and I thought, wow. And so I talked to her on that flight out there. And we get out there. And um, I was thinking about this today or this week. Um, and my brother's supposed to be there to meet me, and he wasn't there. There's something about me that when I fly into airports and people are to meet me, they don't show up, I guess. And so she said... Um, and of course there weren't cell phones in those days and, and she said um, well let me she went and got her luggage and came back and checked and no he's not here and she said well let me take you to the main entrance that's probably where I'll come in and she wrote her name and phone number down on a piece of paper and said um, if if he doesn't show up Go to the payphone and call me, and I'll come pick you up, and and we'll figure figure it out. So I sat there, and 
I mean, L.A. airport, all these people. I'm looking, Dave, Dave, where's Dave at, you know? And and it was about a half hour or so. Here he comes walking in with his girlfriend, okay? That kind of explains it right there, doesn't it? All right. And, um, and yet I went away from that impressed in, the, in this little juvenile mentality that, wow, you know, I, I had this wife of a professional football player kind of take me under her wing and care for me and said she'd come back and pick me up. And, and, um, and I thought, wow, I had access to that. And that's really, that's nothing. That tells you how little people I've had access to in my life. But I was thinking, I hadn't thought about this for years, but for some reason it, I was meditating in Psalm 5, and the psalmist is talking about the access that he has to God. And in verses 1 through 7, he rehearses the privilege of being in God's presence. I mean, he just, right from the beginning, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings or my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. He, he understands his access. You are the King. You are Almighty God. For to you I pray, you'll hear my voice first thing in the morning, Lord. I will come to you in the morning. But notice verse 4. He says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David begins his psalm meditating on the righteous character of God. And as he draws closer to God and he understands his holiness... He also understands man's sinfulness, and he understands that God denies access to the wicked. His point in this is that God is so incompatible with evil that even the most temporary evil cannot coexist with holy God. You've heard the statement, we've made the statement, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. The reality is, you can't separate the sin from the sinner. Because sin is a part of the sinner. And that's why you read these verses that may go against the grain that it says, Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful will not stand in your sight. God hates all the workers of iniquity. God hates the workers of iniquity. And do you understand that includes all of us? Iniquity is another term for self-will. And we all are born into this world with our own self-will that we follow. But God denies access to the wicked. 
The boastful cannot stand in his sight. He hates the workers of iniquity. He will destroy those that speak falsehood. God abhors evil. He abhors sin. He abhors wickedness. And that means he abhors the evil person, the sinner, and the wicked. Every sin is a transgression of the law of God and renders the transgressor as a criminal and hateful, and the transgression cannot be separated from the transgressor any more than our reason or conscience or any other quality of the mind can be separated from our being. So David, he says, God, I know that you hate the workers of iniquity. I know that the proud cannot stand in your presence. And yet, you have given me the privilege to be in your presence because, verse 7, as for me, I come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. David said, I know you are a holy God, and as boasters, and as workers of iniquity, and as vile sinners, I am separated from you, but I have all access now according to the mercies of God. And he says, I don't take this lightly. I don't take this access that I have to God because I am boastful. I am a worker of iniquity. I am evil. But he says, I know none of that has access to you, but I come to you in your mercies. I cry out to you each morning, and I make my prayer before you. Our access is solely by the mercies of God. We, we cannot forget that we come before God because of His mercy. Our standing before God has nothing to do with our actions. It's all of God's grace. God hates the workers of iniquity, but He's willing to cover every worker of iniquity with the blood of Jesus Christ in His mercy, and He opens the doors that we have direct access to God. And David understands that, and, and he's realizing this, and he comes before God, and he's crying out to God. This is a lament psalm. This is a, a psalm of crying out to God, and he says, God, will you please hear my meditation? Words that at times we can't even utter. And he said, I know I'm coming before you only in your mercies. It's not because I've done well lately. It's not because... I'm, I'm a second, third, fourth generation Christian. It is only by your mercies that I'm coming because I understand you have denied access to many, many, many people. The only way we have access to God is by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And we must keep that foremost in our mind and understanding it's not we have an opportunity to, to talk to some great human being. We have an opportunity to speak with the creator of the universe, the one who is in control of everything. And it is not because we're special. It's because of the mercies of God. 
So David reminds himself of that, and then David comes with his personal prayer. Notice verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of mine enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Notice his personal prayer. Lord, I want you to lead me in your righteousness. I want you to make your way straight for me. I want you to make it plain for me. I want you to help me to know your way, not my way. That's an attitude of submission. His his personal prayer is, Lord, lead me in your way. Because of my enemies. Because my enemies would love to speak evil of you, God, because I am a follower of you, so lead me in the, in the way of your righteousness. And Lord, lead me in a straight way, meaning um, help me to clearly understand your way. In another psalm, he said, lead me in a plain path. Help me to understand it. Don't make it um, uh, camouflage. Don't make it um, hard to see. So his personal prayer is, Lord, I want your way, not my way. And then he goes on. And he makes reference to his enemies. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb or sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. And notice what he prays. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Verses 9 and 10, you might say, wow, that, that's quite a vindictive prayer that, that David's praying. What David is praying for is for justice. And he knows God is a God of justice. And David said, they are all about destruction. There is no faithfulness at all in them. And he said, God, I want you to bring justice. I want you to cause them, because they are committed to their ways, I want you to cause them to be a a consequence of their own ways. Because they have rebelled against you. God, I want you to bring justice. I don't know about you, but does it kind of get under your skin when you hear about voter fraud and lies and injustices and all that going on? And you think, what can we do about it? You can pray that God brings justice. And God is a God that is committed to justice. And this is a prayer that that God will answer. It's an appeal to God knowing He is a righteous judge and knowing that God will bring justice and no one gets by with evil forever. And that ought to encourage our hearts. And it ought to be a warning to our own hearts. And what David is praying is a request for for justice. So he begins a psalm and he's saying, God, I'm coming to you and there's heaviness on my heart, but I, I am grateful for the access that I have toward you. I, I understand that, 
The majority of people do not have access, and it's all in your mercy. And God, I am coming to you now, and I'm asking that you bring justice, that you'd lead me in the right path, and that you would bring justice. And then he ends this psalm with a prayer and prescription for joy. So he begins it with heaviness. He ends it with joy. Notice verse 11. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. As, as I read through this, notice all the references to rejoice, joy, and so on. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. So David makes a prayer for joy. Let those that love you be filled with joy. Let, let those who love your name. Joy is a great thing and something to be desired. It should be the hallmark of every follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting... Um, Charles Spurgeon had a lot to say about joy. He said, you should pray for joy, both in yourself and in others. Think about it. When's the last time you prayed for joy? For yourself or for others? Especially you should pray for, he said, joy for servants of the Lord. If you, you, if you lose your joy in religion... You will be a poor worker. You cannot bear strong testimony. You cannot bear stern trial. You cannot lead a powerful life. In proportion as you maintain your joy, you will be strong in the Lord and for the Lord. Do you understand what he's saying? The joy of the Lord is our strength. He went on and said, Come ye mournful ones, be glad. Ye discontented grumblers, Come out of the dog hole, Spurgeon said. Enter into the place of the king. Quit your dung hills. That's your manure pile. Quit living in the manure pile. Ascend to your thrones. What he's saying is, we serve the king, a just king. You have access to the king. Quit walking around like the battle's lost. Quit moping and complaining and whining. And walk in the joy of the Lord. A touch of enthusiasm, he said, would be the salvation of many man's religion. Some Christians are good enough people. They are like wax candles, but they're never lit. He said, oh, for a touch of the flame. Oh, for joy. Then they would scatter the light and they would become a service to their families. Let them shout for joy, he said. And really, this is what the psalmist is praying. You notice, let all those rejoice who put their trust in thee. We have great reason to shout for joy. The Lord has done great things for us. If the only thing he ever did was forgive our sins and make us a child of His, 
we should be shouting for joy. And he gives here a prescription for joy. Number one, trust God. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. To trust God. In other words, yes, it does begin with trusting God. I am a sinner. I deserve God's judgment. But I believe that God sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for my sin. He died in my place, was buried, and rose again victorious. And he offers to me in Jesus Christ forgiveness of sin. That's the first step of trusting God. But it's trusting God when God says, no, don't think that thought. You say, okay, God, I trust you. It's trusting God and his ways and saying, God, I want you to lead me in your way. And when he shows us his way, we do it. It's trusting God. So first of all, the first prescription for joy is to trust God. Then you notice he said, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. Number one, trust God. Number two, love God. We love him because he first loved us. And it, this is sequential. When I trust God and I depend on him, I'll see him work and I will love him more. You can't love him if you don't trust him. So you trust God and then that produces love. And all along the way, joy is being produced in us. And then he says, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. The third thing is obey God. Righteous is doing what is right. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. We walk in righteousness when we do what is right. So he says, trust God, love God, and obey God. If you love me, keep my commandments, he said in John 15.10. Does our trust of God and our love of God culminate in practical righteousness? Does it culminate in, in making me a better man on the job, a better man or woman in the home, a better father or mother, a better child? Does it culminate in practical righteousness? And he says, then, when we trust God, when we love God, when we obey God, then we can rest in God. He is a defender to us. And the last part of Psalm 5, with favor you will surround him as with a shield. We can rest. Why? God, I trusted you. This is what you told me to do. I am now obeying you. Out of love, I am obeying you. And now I rest in you. You are a shield around those that trust in him. And do you understand? That's when we have great joy. He is our defender. The Lord protects his people and gives them great cause to rejoice See, if our spiritual life 
tastes like a nauseous medicine, we've got something wrong. Oh, I guess I better go. Guess I better go read. Oh, let's go to church today. Oh, let's pray. When I was a kid, my mom knew a doctor, and he had his own mix of stuff. It was called blackstrap. It was molasses, and it was to build your iron and your... And it was like, Dennis, it's time to take your blackstrap. Ah, you know, and ah, you know. It was something like kale, you know what I mean? You any rate, to a lot of people, anything spiritual, that's how it is for them. They don't have joy. And it's evident. Something is drastically wrong when we as believers don't have joy. Oh, I guess I better do this. You know, that's what they tell me I need to do. No. And and the psalmist is saying here, he makes it his prayer, and, and we ought to make it our prayer. If there is real revival, there will be an abundance of joy. And, and it, it begins, people will be trusting God, and people will be loving God, and obeying God, and resting in Him. And the psalmist his prayer was, God, have, have mercy on us and help us to rejoice in you by putting our trust in you. Help us to ever shout for joy because we love you so much. And help us to walk in the joy of you by our obedience and then to have the rest. The offertory stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Resting in God. Having joy. The psalmist said, God, in the morning you will hear my prayer to you. Not because somebody was dragging him. Come on, it's time to pray. Not because an accountability group said, how many times did you pray this week? Not because of that. He said, you mean I have access to God? Whoa! I I have questions. I want to go tell Him I love Him. I want, I can go to God? You better believe it. I'm going to be there. And he said, God, would you bring an awakening of joy among your people? Bighorn sheep in the Rocky Mountains, in various national parks, they'll allow visitors to approach them from below to take pictures. But if anyone ever tries to get above them, the entire herd will run for higher ground. Because... That is the only way that they escape from predators is by going to higher ground. On a level ground, 
The cougar can easily overtake the wild sheep. But gifted as they are by God and design, scrambling up the boulder-strewn slope, the bighorns can get away in short time. The psalmist is basically saying to us, no matter what danger you face, don't let anything get between you and God. Always go to higher ground. The song says, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And the psalmist said, my, I am overwhelmed, God, you do not allow the wicked into your presence, proud and boasters, you do not, you hate the wicked, and yet... I am now here talking to you. This is incredible, God. This is, this is amazing. Thank you for your mercies. And God, while I'm here, I pray you'd bring justice on all these wicked doers. And God, while I'm in your presence, I ask that you would help us to have an abundance of joy by trusting you, by loving you, by obeying you, And resting in you, God, give us your joy. Will you make that your prayer? Heavenly Father, forgive us for taking access to you so flippantly. For ignoring the access. Lord, forgive us for our lack of joy. Because we're not willing to trust you. We're not willing to submit our will to your will. And Lord, I pray that you would bring an abundance of joy in our walk with you. I pray that we truly would love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And Lord, I would pray today if there is one person who has never trusted you for the forgiveness of their sin, trusted the payment of Christ for our sin, Lord, I pray today they would call upon Jesus. I pray for every believer here today. May we trust you more. And Lord, I pray that you would bring an awakening of joy as we abide in your presence. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and eyes closed.